Good morning, everyone. Glad you've joined us. As Kathy mentioned, uh, we've been talking about how to find God's peace in the middle of the pressure of life. Recently, my wife and I were having a discussion about some of the pressure that we're facing in our own life these days, and I guess the conversation was getting a little bit um, heavy, and so she finally paused. She said, you know, things really aren't that bad. And she was exactly right, because if you'd look at our surrounding, we were having this conversation in our hot tub in the back of our uh, yard of our house, a house that we absolutely love, one mile from the beach, and one of the nicest places to live in all of the earth. So things really are not that bad. But given our surroundings, you would, you would expect that everyone here would experience nothing but peace all the time, and that's just not the case. And the question is why? Well, it's because pressure comes from two different places. There's two different sources. There's external pressure, and there's internal pressure. External pressure occurs whenever the demands of life go up. Something happens, some circumstance shifts is on the outside, and, and we're put under a lot of pressure. Internal pressure, though, occurs when the demands that we place on ourselves go up. And that's the kind of pressure that I want to talk about today, this, this internal or this personal pressure. Now, internal pressure comes from three sources, and there's three different types of internal pressure. We're going to look at these today. Our guide has been the, the book of Philippians, a small book in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. So let's go ahead and dump, jump in. This is uh, the first pressure, personal kind of pressure that we face, the pressure to be perfect, the pressure to be perfect. Most Sunday afternoons, um, sometime on my way home, I'll, I'll remember a mistake that I made in the message that morning. Either it's a word I mispronounced or maybe it was an idea that I, I think I didn't really communicate as well as I could, and it, it bothers me. And that's not just a, a Sunday thing for me. Often I'll walk away from conversations and I'll realize, you know, I should have listened better. I can't remember exactly what we were talking about, or I should have been more encouraging. Or I'll remember something that I said I would do, and it, it's still not done. And with every one of these failures, both small and large, the, the pressure just kind of keeps going up on the inside. And if I let it, I can, I can really beat myself up over these kinds of things. But if somebody else identifies a weakness in me or a shortcoming, I, I tend to then get overly defensive or overly discouraged. And I suspect I'm not the only one in the room that, that has this tendency to kind of beat up on ourselves and, and put some more pressure on us than we really should. Why can't we just smile at our failures and just try to do better next time? I mean, everyone agrees that no one is perfect, so why do we all keep trying to be perfect then? Well, it's because of our broken relationship with God. We were created by God to be holy, to be perfect. We were made in the image of God, Scripture says. What that means is that's the shape of our souls. That's, that's who we really are on the inside. We were created to be holy. The moral outline of our life is supposed to match the outline of God's character, much like the shadows that we cast match our bodies. There to be an exact outline of God's character. But now, of course, we are anything but holy. We're far from perfect. We're sinful. I mean, some are more and some are less, but we're all sinful. And just because we've decided to be unholy doesn't change the fact that we were created to be holy. We are, we are in a sense, wired, hardwired on the inside to be perfect. And we feel this at a soul level, even if we don't really think God exists or we don't acknowledge any break in the relationship, we, we can't get away from the fact that this is who we are. This is how we were made. We feel it deep inside. And this is why everyone on the planet 
is striving for some version of perfection to help us feel better about our unholy selves. But this comes with a, a lot of internal pressure. We put a ton of pressure on ourselves to do this. And because the pressure is so high, what we often do is we kind of redefine what right and wrong is. In a sense, we kind of lower the bar so that we can maybe have a hope of, of reaching that. We kind of design our own standards of perfection. But even when we redraw the outline of what it means to be perfect, we can't even do that. We can't even get to the level that we think we should, let alone what God thinks. We can't do our own version of perfect, let alone God's. But we keep trying, and the pressure keeps mounting. But there is a better way. It's stated in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. This is what it says. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Continue to work out your salvation. Now, there are only two possible solutions to our sin problem, either perfection or salvation. Those are the only two options that are available for what we feel on the inside. Now, with perfection, the pressure is on who? Well, it's on us, the ones performing. With salvation, the pressure shifts from us to the one who's doing the saving. And most people are on the perfection plan, not the salvation plan. That's why so many people are under so much pressure. With perfection, you've, you've got to get everything right. I mean, you, you can't accept failure on any level because, well, then you're falling short of perfection. It only takes one slip-up to ruin perfection. With salvation, though, you only have to get one thing right. You have to make sure you pick the person who is actually able to save you, who actually can deal with the sin problem and can forgive you. Now, sometimes people turn to other individuals to, in a sense, rescue them or, or save them. But no human can save another human. That's because they're in the same predicament as you are. One drowning person can't be of any assistance to another drowning person. Only Jesus, who, who was God in flesh and lived a perfect life, is able to save us. He's the only one in human form to ever match the exact outline of the Father, of God himself. And only his perfect life, given in exchange for our imperfect lives, can ever forgive us, can ever address our imperfect problems and forgive us of our sins. In order for that to happen, we, we just simply have to admit that, well, we've drawn way outside of the lines, our lines and God's lines, and ask him to forgive us and save us. And he actually does. But that doesn't sound like work, does it? That just sounds like a simple request. So why does it say we need to continue to work out our salvation? What's the work? Well, it's not working in order to qualify to be saved. It's working out the salvation that you've already been given if, if you've requested it. You see, we can't work our way to perfection. We've already talked about this. We might as well be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean trying to swim to Hawaii. I mean, it's just not going to happen. We're going to fall far short. But when we cry out for help and we ask Jesus, the right person, to save us, to rescue us, he enters, in a sense, he enters the waters of our life in the middle of that ocean. And he stays with us and sees to it that we're going to make it to heaven where we will finally be perfect. But until that day, we're still in the water and we need to start kicking in the right direction. You see, Jesus 
doesn't just show up and tranquilize us and carry our limp bodies through this life to the next life when we ask Him to save us. There's a lot of life to be lived. There's a lot of ocean to swim between here and the next life. And we've got to learn how to swim and work out the salvation that we've been given. And until heaven, until we are finally rescued, on dry land in a sense, that work has two participants. God works and we works. We work, that's what it says in this verse. Our work is what? Fear and trembling. Now that doesn't sound like work, does it? It sounds like emotion. But these two words describe what is true of somebody who is in real danger. I mean, imagine if you're in the middle of that ocean and you're in shark-infested waters, what's your emotion going to be? Fear. And what's your body going to be doing? Trembling. And that's, that's a rational response to the reality of your surroundings. And let's say a lifeguard jumps in to save you. Does your fear and trembling go away? No. Why not? Well, you're still in the water. And the sharks are still swimming. They can still take a limb. You're still in shark-infested waters. The point that's being made in this verse is we need to take God and his word seriously, even if we've asked Jesus to forgive us. That doesn't mean that we're no longer in shark-infested waters, that the, this world is no longer a danger to us. See, a lot of people think that the Bible is just kind of some ideas about how you might be nicer or, or kind of morally improve your life. What God's Word really is, is God's Word is instruct, instructions about how to swim through shark-infested waters. And, and if we don't take what He said seriously, well, it's going to get bloody. It's going to get more painful than it has to be. We might even lose a limb or two. Now, we can still be saved. Jesus can still bring us to heaven, but boy, it's going to be a lot more painful than it has to be. And so we need to, if we've decided that Jesus is the one that can save us, we don't just go limp then and give up all effort. No, no, we, we start swimming towards Hawaii. We start swimming towards what God says is right and listening to everything that Jesus says and everything that the Bible says because, well, we're still in danger. Now, he can save us. The only question is how much blood we're going to lose and how many limbs we're going to lose in the process. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And God works also. His work is to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, to will and to act, those are pretty much the two essential components behind everything that you do. Whatever you do today, it's going to be, first of all, because you want to do it. There's the will. And secondly, you're able to do it. If you don't want to, you're not going to do it. But if you want to and you can't, you're still not going to do it. You need both of those. I mean, if you're going to arrive at your car in the parking lot later today, you need to want to go to your car and you need to be able to go to your car. So the point is, is this, whenever it comes to doing what is right, doing life according to God's direction, His purpose, we struggle with both of these. Sometimes we just don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. You know, I find this is one of the main reasons why people have some intellectual problems with the Bibles. Bottom line, when it gets right down to it, they just don't want to do it. They don't have a will. They don't want to do it. But even when we do want to do it, the second struggle we have is, we don't do it very well, or, or we, we've said we really want to do this, and then two weeks go by and we haven't done it. So we struggle to will and to act according to God's purpose. In other words, forget being perfect. Even after you've decided to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to struggle with these things. You're not going to be perfect just because you've been forgiven. 
You need to ask Jesus to save you, to forgive you, and then start kicking in the right direction. And when you do that, when you take his word seriously and start trying to do it, idea by idea, God then will come alongside and he'll do the heavy lifting. He'll, he'll put the want to where there wasn't a want to. And he'll put the can do where there wasn't a can do. He'll, he'll help you do much better than you can. Now, you'll still need his forgiveness. You can't swim to Hawaii by yourself, but, boy, you can make more progress with his help than you could without. So we think the solution to our many failures is we, we just have to bear down and buckle down, and we just have to try harder. We put more pressure on ourselves. But you see, the only real solution to that problem is salvation. We're never going to make the perfection level. We must be saved. The second pressure, first pressure is the pressure to be perfect. The second pressure is the pressure to please others, to please others. Let me read again the, the first part of the verses that we just read. It says, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what's, what's going on here? When, when Paul was with them in the city of Philippi, which is in northern Greece, they were, they were taking God and his word seriously. They were obeying him. But now Paul is in prison in Rome, awaiting trial before Nero. And so he realizes that with him being gone, it's going to take much more in his absence for them to keep working as hard as they were to keep working out their salvation. Why? Why would Paul's absence make any difference? Well, it's because human nature is we, we tend to do more when people are watching than when they aren't. That's just common. And the reason is because for the most part, not everyone, but for the most part, people want to be pleasing to other people. We want to please other people, not, not disappoint them. Well, why, do we, why do we even care what people think about us? Why does it matter to us? Well, it's similar to why we're trying so hard to be perfect in some area in our life. It's just the way God made us. It's how we're hardwired on the inside. doesn't matter whether you believe in God or believe in the Bible. It's, you're going to struggle with trying to please somebody and probably a group of somebodies. And the reason is because this is how God made you. We talked about just the one point ago that we feel the pressure to be perfect because we were created to be holy, but we feel the pressure to please other people because we were created to please God. We, we can't get away from that. Even if we don't believe he exists, that's in our DNA. That's just who we are. And there will be a day when we will all stand before God to answer for every single thing that we've said and every single thing that we've done. Now, we may not have read the verses that talk about that, but again, that's hard. We know this. We know that we're going to have to give an account of our lives. So it's not enough for us to be happy with ourselves. We've got to find a reference point. We've got to please someone else. And on that day where we stand before God, the only way we'll survive that day is if Jesus is our defense attorney. There's no other defense. I mean, all of the audio and all the video is going to be there. I mean, it, there'll be no defense other than the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Now, again, nobody has to tell us these things. We know this at a soul level. It's, it's who we are. But since sin entered into the world and separated us from God, we all know that we're not pleasing him. So because we are wired to please somebody, we've gone off in search of the closest thing we can find. And the closest thing to pleasing God is to please someone made in God's image, another person. But it turns out that pleasing people is even more difficult in many cases than being perfect. Why? Well, first of all, 
there's a whole lot more of them to please than just God. I mean, if you've got very many people in your life, someone's always a little disappointed with you. I mean, that, that's just the way it is. I mean, you can, you can strive and you can work difficult, but if you know more than 10 people, well, I promise you, one of them's not happy with you. It's, you just, I don't care how good you are, you just can't pull it off. The second problem with people is that people are a moving target. I mean, God never changes. What he loves and what he doesn't love, what he says is right and what he says is wrong, never changes. But people, well, people are as fickle as the day is long. What makes them happy one day won't make them happy the next day. So you're constantly trying to please everybody in your circle and finding that what pleases them today is not going to please them tomorrow. And so it's, there's just an incredible amount of pressure that's being put on you because of that. This past week, I decided to change internet providers. And um, so I made the arrangements and got the new service hooked up. And so I, I, when I discovered it was working fine, then I called the previous provider to disconnect that service. And I expected you know, a little bit of pressure to be put on because I was leaving. But I was not prepared for this conversation. I, I was standing. I should have been sitting down to prepare for the pressure that was about to descend on me. First of all, I got the guilt treatment. I mean, I was, I was told by this gentleman, you know, what he said basically is how can you characterize my company in such a bad light? I mean, it was basically the way he said it. I was like, what, what did I say? And I thought back to what I said when he asked why I was leaving, and I, all I'd said is I want a better price. That was it. But it was just how could I characterize the company in such a bad light? And then he went on and he asked me, how could I so easily end such a, such a good long-term relationship, the relationship that we had? I was, actually, I was starting to feel bad and beginning to wonder, well, maybe I made a mistake. I mean, long-term relationships are, are hard to come by. And then I suddenly realized, what relationship? <laughs> the only deal we had was you provide internet and I pay the bill. I don't even know your name. We don't have a relationship, and it's certainly not a long-term relationship. But this guy was good. I mean, he was, he was in the right position for his skill set and his awareness of human nature. And I imagine he's rescued a lot of customers for the company because he knew how much we all want to please people, and he was laying that pressure on thick. Thankfully, I was able to escape his Jedi tricks and, and <laughs> stick with the, the provider that I had. You see, we, we feel the pressure to please others. And some of us feel it more, some of us feel it less, but we all feel it. And the reason is because, well, we've chosen the wrong person to please. We've chosen to please this person or that person rather than the one who made us. And you, you cannot gather an audience large enough, and they cannot applaud you large enough to make up for God's approval. I mean, just, just look at Hollywood. You know, there are people that, you know, they've got the applause of more individuals than any of us will ever. And you can just tell by the way they make their choices, it's still not enough. Because they were created to please God. Anything short just won't do it. It won't lift the pressure. And that brings us to the third pressure. That is the pressure to produce, to come up with results, something to show for our life that's valuable and that's tangible. This is what it says now in Philippians 2, the next verses, 14 through 16. Paul says, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. What we see in these verses is the difference between what God measures and what we measure. 
Notice the standard that God uses to measure blameless and pure. You know, if, you, if I just gave you those words and, and I said, so how do you think God would measure that? I mean, you'd probably come up with, you know, a list of steps and, and some projects and things that we could do, some, some good works, and those would all be fine. But what it says here is how God measures blameless and pure is you don't complain and you don't argue. Well, it doesn't sound like an accomplishment, does it? I mean, could you get a job for just not complaining and not arguing? That's not a job description. I mean, you can lose your job for complaining all the time and arguing, but no one's going to hire you just to hang around and be nice. The reason is, is you're hired to produce something, and that's appropriate. I mean, someone's going to give you a paycheck because you've, you've done something that's valuable. And because that's just the way our life is, we just assume that our life really doesn't have value unless, well, we've produced something that people look at and say, that's, that's impressive. Short of that, we're, we wonder whether we have value. But you see, when it comes to our relationship with God, it's very different. And the reason is because God doesn't need us to produce anything for him. Our value to God is not in what we produce. I mean, just think about it. God, God produced the Rockies, the Rocky Mountains. He does sunsets. He, he produced the stars. How, how are we going to aid that? What could we ever do to which God would say, wow, thank you. I didn't know how I was going to make that. I didn't know how I was going to pull that amount of money together. I didn't know how I was going to build that. But, you know, you came along and, well, you're valuable now because you produced something I couldn't produce. Of course, that's, that's not the case. So our value to God is not in what we produce. God will never, for example, look at this property and say, wow, those buildings are amazing. I mean, they're nice, they're great, they're very functional. We really like it. But I mean, again, he did the Rocky Mountains, far more impressive. So God doesn't need us to produce anything. What God is looking for is people, quite simply, who trust him, who sight unseen, look at the evidence, and discover that what he has said is really true, and they decide to trust him without ever seeing him. That's, what God's, that's the value that God's looking for. So what does that look like? Well, as it says here, they, those kind of people, they don't complain, they don't argue. Why? Well, those who trust Jesus aren't living under the pressure to be perfect. I mean, they're, they're, they're working to get better, but not because they're trying to save themselves. They've already been forgiven. So the pressure's off. And forgiven people have absolutely no appetite for complaining about the flaws in other people. I mean, it just makes no sense. If, if I really realize that I've been completely forgiven and I'm working to get better, not because I'm trying to prove myself, but because I'm really trying to save, you know, from losing any more limbs in this world. So I'm not doing it to be perfect. And I realize I've been forgiven. Why would I ever want to complain about you or somebody else? I mean, you've got flaws, I've got flaws. What's the point in complaining about that? We all need to be forgiven. So if you're really forgiven, that complaining is like, well, it just makes no sense. And if you're not living under the pressure to please people because in Christ you've pleased God, then you've got nothing to prove. And what that means is there's absolutely no reason for me to argue with you. There's no reason for me to win. There's no reason for me to prove anything to you. I've already been approved by God. Why, why do I need to win an argument? So again, when it gets into... Argument fight mode, you're just like, yeah, I have no appetite for that. See, the pressure is off. This kind of person stands out in the world 
it says in this verse, like a bright star up against the blackness of space. What that means is they're very rare. Very rare. Most of space is what? Space. That's why it's called space. There's celestial bodies up there, but boy, they make up a minuscule percentage of the entire universe. The same thing is true. If you find someone who doesn't complain and doesn't argue, you've just run into a star in God's book because the pressure's off. They got nothing to prove. They got nothing to complain about. That's the standard that God uses to measure the impact of a life. Not what did they produce, but they eventually get to the point where pretty much they stopped complaining and pretty much they stopped arguing. That's, that's valuable to God. But what's our standard? Well, our standard is production. That's just the way we think. It goes on in verse 16. So Paul says, now, I, I want you to be this. I hope you become these kind of people. And he says, why? In order that I may boast on the day of Christ, you know, when this life is wrapped up, history ends, I want, I want to be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. Let me pause there. What's he saying? He's saying, you know, I, I've put a lot of effort in you guys, and, and I want to have something to show for this. I don't want to come to the end of my life and, and have put all this effort into you and have you guys flake out on me. So my hope is that you guys really will continue and you will work out your salvation and you will become these kinds of people. And that's, that's not a necessarily a bad desire. He's just being honest. I, I'm, I'm really hoping that you guys are, you know, give me something to show for all the effort I put in there. You see, Paul thinks like we think. We think of life kind of like a bucket. You know, we, we pour out our time, we pour out our effort, our gifts and our energies and our money and into something and, and we want to have something to show for it so we, we pick buckets and we pour out into those buckets and then we want to look over the edge of the buckets and we want to see that okay i got something to show for my life look at that there's something that's that's remained there's something tangible to to see but there are two problems with the buckets that we pour our lives into whether it's a job bucket whether it's a family bucket, whether it's a financial bucket, whatever the bucket is, there's two problems with it. First of all, every single bucket in this world leaks. They're all leaky. Nobody gets a one-for-one one result. They all leak. I mean, you, you can put your effort into something, and maybe you could build a business, and then all of a sudden the economy shifts, or, or you make a mistake, and boom, it's gone. And you look over the edge, and maybe you put decades into the thing, and it's just gone. Or maybe you put all kinds of effort into a marriage and then something happens and boom, it's gone. That's just the way life is. In fact, the leakiest of all buckets are people. I mean, this is what Paul is really concerned about in these verses. I mean, you can invest in like he has and you can love and you can help people and then they can go flaky on you. They, they, they can do something awful and, and you've put all kinds of time and effort and you really took risk and now the relationship's gone. Paul is hoping that these people that he's poured his life into aren't a wasted bucket for him. But it's a risk. And the second problem with, with buckets is that, well, in the end, all of our buckets get kicked over and all of the contents run out. Ironically, we actually refer to death as kicking the bucket. So if the buckets that we pour our life into tend to leak, and in the end... No matter how much we've stored up in our buckets, it all gets kicked over and run out on the ground. 
what are we supposed to do with our lives then? It's not bad to want to have something show for your life, but because there's so much risk involved and so little return usually, what's, what should our approach be? That's why Paul goes on and says this, but, this is a big but, but, what he's saying is, even if you guys turn out to be flake balls, even if you just disappear on me, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, well, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. In the uncertainty of the buckets we pour into, we need a different approach, a different image. And Paul says that image is an altar, a drink offering. What's he, what's he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, the altar was the place where people would, um, would give up something to God, where they, they would put something on the altar. They would sacrifice something of value and give it to God. And the most common of all offerings, of all gifts, was called the drink offering. And what it involved is someone would take water, or if they had more resources they, and they could afford it, they would take wine, and they, they would just pour it out on the altar of God, and, and it would just run out onto the ground. And, and the, the statement that was being made behind that visual image was, I'm pouring out my life in service to God. That was the statement that was made behind that action. Now, what happens when water's poured out? Well, it, you, don't, you can't get it back, right? It's not like a bucket where, oh, I've got something to see for. No, it, it runs out of the ground, and it appears to be lost. But you see, if you pour it out on the altar, not just the ground, but the altar that's on the ground, well, then it's, it's different than that because it was given to God. And God can use what's been poured out, the water that's been poured out of a life, onto the ground, and he can bring life out of that piece of dirt where there was no life. So what is it that would motivate a person to keep pouring into a human bucket where there appears to be too many leaks and very little return? For example, why, why would someone keep pouring into a marriage that's, well, it's no longer enjoyable, and it's just more work, and it is fun, and the romance has died, and the feelings are gone? Why would someone keep pouring in? Well, most people don't see a reason. They look over the edge of their marriage bucket and they say, you know, I've wasted too long in this bucket. I've got to get me another bucket. They get another bucket. This one leaks too. Got to get another bucket. And just kind of keep moving through buckets. The reason you would pour into a marriage is because that marriage bucket sits on top of an altar that is God's altar and God says, this is, you're doing this for me. You're pouring it out and sacrifice and service to me. Why, why would you pour your life into a, a child that's moving into adolescence and adulthood and they, they just continue to rip your heart out and cause grief? Well, there's a lot of complexities in that, but the reason you would still try to figure out how you can pour your life into is because, again, that child bucket sits over God's altar. Why would you pour out your life into a church where you're, you're starting to struggle? Or the church is starting to struggle. Well, why would you stick it out? Well, again, if you're looking for a less leaky bucket, you wouldn't. But if that's the place where God says you need to serve, then it's his altar. You are pouring into a bucket, and you would like to see something for it, but even if it leaks out, it's suspended over an altar. And you're okay. When you kick the bucket, it, it doesn't matter how much you head in that bucket at the time that the bucket is kicked. It matters where all the stuff that leaked out of your bucket went. What was it for? 
What matters in the end is not the content of the bucket, but the position of the bucket. And we get our entire life to get the bucket positioned right. I highly recommend getting it positioned right early so you can pour more on God's altar. But if we don't get that bucket positioned right and we kick the bucket, then our life literally will be an entire waste. Because it's all run out. None of it's been in service to God. None of it's going to matter for eternity. You see, we measure the results. I mean, it's, this is just, I do this. This is natural to us. I want to I see results. I want to see productiveness. And that's fine. But there's, there's something bigger going on, and that's because God doesn't measure results as much as he measures sacrifice. That's what's of value to him. So do you feel a lot of pressure on the inside? Are you under pressure uh, internally? Beating yourself up because of your failures? Well, it might be because you've chosen the wrong solution to your sin problem. I mean, you were created to be holy. That's why you're beating yourself up. Because you're not perfect. But the solution to your failures and my failures is not harder work and more pressure. It's, well, it's salvation. Maybe you feel internal pressure because you've chosen the wrong person to please. You've gathered around yourself a nice little audience. But it's just not enough. And so you're putting the pressure on yourself. Only God's approval is what matters. Or it could be because you've chosen the wrong standard to measure your life. You've chosen a handful of buckets that keep leaking. And God says, no, it's not about the bucket. It's about the altar. The results are up to God. I mean, God doesn't need us to produce anything. What he's offered for us is to pour our leaky lives and into leaky buckets that are on his altar that will matter forever. So relax. Be at peace. The pressure is completely off of us. I mean, this is all we have to do in life. All we have to do is choose the right Savior to save us, bow before the right, right Master, and find the right altars to pour our life out onto. We can do that. I can't be perfect. I can't please everybody. I can't produce enough. But I, 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 can, I can pick the right Savior. I can bow before the right Master, God Himself. Man, I can, I can discover where God's altars are and pour my life out on those. That I can do. That you can do. So the pressure's off. Just do that. Let me give you some next steps to consider taking as we wrap up this morning. These are on the back of your connection card, the upper left-hand corner, also the bottom of your listing guide. Next step number one, I would encourage you to memorize the first two verses in this passage. And by memorize, I mean just write it out on a card, carry it with you, read it many times during the week, and by the end of the week, you'll probably have it memorized. But the first two verses say, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I encourage you to memorize those verses. Secondly, I would encourage you this week to read the entire book of Philippians. And by entire, I mean it's only four chapters. You can do this in probably 20, 30 minutes total during the week. But I would encourage you to read the entire book of Philippians to get familiar with the entire book as we work our way through it. And then lastly, I would challenge you to, to carve out maybe 10 or 15 minutes this week and just try to identify where the altars of God are in your life. Where are the altars that God would want you to pour your life out into? Just, just make a list. Maybe talk to a friend or your spouse and get some help on where those are. But it, it's encouraging to figure out, these are the altars. This is where I need to position my life and pour my life out to. Let's pray together.
Jesus, we are, we are so grateful for the tremendous sacrifice you made, first of all, by taking on a human body that was humbling enough, and then to allow yourself to die in our place, not just a gunshot to the head death, but a crucifixion over six hours death. We thank you for all the evidence that you've given in history for us to be able to just look these things up and figure it out and, and point out that you really did this. But we thank you for your sacrifice that has earned us salvation that we could never earn. And it's taken the pressure off. Now, now we can work out our salvation in the middle of this dangerous world. We thank you for qualifying us to stand before the Father and actually be pleasing in His sight. Not just passable, but pleasing. And we thank you for the chance to pour our lives out onto your altars. Some of us will have more in this world to show for our efforts, and some will have a lot less. But in the end, it's, it's the opportunity to give our life and service to you that's, that's going to matter most. We thank you for giving us things that really are doable and for taking the pressure off on the inside. I pray for those that are living under tremendous pressure internally. And God, you'd help them to to make one or all of these steps that begin to remove the pressure. We need your help, and we ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.